1859, the famous tightrope walker, Charles Blondine, went to Niagara Falls, and he stretched a three-inch cable across the gorge. After preparations were made on June 30th, 1859, Blondine walked 1,100 feet across the gorge, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls. Now, as amazing as that one performance was, over the next 37 years, he made a trip across Niagara Falls Gorge around 300 additional times. And as he did so, he kept upping the ante. Sometimes he did it blindfold. Other times he walked on stilts. He pushed a wheelbarrow across. Then he did it with a sack of potatoes in it. He sat down on the wire. Sometimes he balanced on his head or a chair. He even at one point carried a stove out and cooked an omelet halfway across the gorge. (laughs) Now, as amazing as all of those things were, on one occasion... Uh, Blondine took his manager, Harry Colcourt, and he carried him on his back across the gorge. Now, as they prepared to cross, Blondine gave Colcourt these instructions. He said, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcourt. You are now Blondine. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any of the balancing yourself. Trust me. To take you across. Now imagine if when they were about halfway across, Colcord had tapped Blondine on the shoulder and he said, hey, I appreciate you taking me this far, but I want you to put me down now and I'm going to go the rest of the way myself. What do you think would have happened to Harry? In all likelihood, he would have fallen to his death uh, in the falls below. Now, The reason I share that with you is because Harry had been carried that far, and nobody would say that he would then say, well, I want to do the rest of the way myself. He was trusting in Blondine to do it. But as we turn in our Bible today to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to see where something like this happened with the Galatian believers. You remember that Paul has been talking to these Gentile Christians from the area of Galatia, and he's talking to them about how they have been saved by faith, Uh, in what Christ did on the cross alone, not through works, not through circumcision, not through all the things that these Judaizers were coming in and telling these Gentile believers they had to do in order to be saved. And Paul, as he's talking to them, is kind of incredulous. He's saying, what's wrong with y'all? He said, to this point, you've trusted in Christ alone through faith alone to be saved, but suddenly, because of the false teaching of these Judaizers, you guys are saying, okay, God, we'll take it from here. We'll do it the rest of the way. And Paul's response to them is seen as we begin reading in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, how does he, uh, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Now, what's happening here is as Paul starts this section of his letter, he, he's talking to these Christians, these Gentile believers, and he's saying, he says, I want to take you to your own personal experience for a moment. He says, I want you to think about 
where you've been, what God has done in your life, and where you're going. And so as he says, do you need to continue to trust in Christ or do you need to now live according to the law? He raises this with them by a series of rhetorical questions. Now, as you know, a rhetorical question is where the answer is already evident. It's like a statement. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, let's look at the facts. Let's look at the life experiences you guys have and, and see what you already know. So he starts by saying, what were you thinking? Now, what he's really saying here is, it's clear you weren't thinking. He says, it's like somebody has put a spell on you, a hex. The truth of the matter is right there in front of you. As he says this, as he talks about Christ being publicly portrayed, he uses a Greek word that literally means to post on a, on a billboard type of setting in a public place where the message is for everybody to see. He says it's right here. It's so evident. The gospel of grace is something that has been shown to you. And he says, you who received Jesus by faith are now trying to live under the law. And he says it makes no sense, which is why he says, are you guys under a spell? Who's bewitched you? Who's, who's like a, an illusionist? Have you ever uh, seen a magic show where the illusionist, what they do is while they're, they, they try to get you to focus over here on something, draw your attention over here so they can change or hide what they're doing over here. And he says, this is what's happening with you guys. Somebody has come in and cast a spell. You were focused over here on Jesus and who he is and what he did, how you were saved by faith alone through grace alone. He says, but the Judaizers have come in and through some sleight of hand, through some confusion in their teaching, your eyes have been drawn off the source of your salvation, the person and work of Jesus, to now saying, I've got to work my own way to heaven. And he says, it makes no sense. He as he shakes his head, he, he says in verse 2, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit on the basis of the law, did you? Of course, the answer is no. It was the basis of faith. And so he says, given that fact, he goes on in verse 3 to say, you're not dumb, are you? He says, well, let me tell you this. What you're doing is dumb. Because you who were free are now putting yourself under bondage, bondage of the law. And he continues by saying, can, can we finish in the flesh what was started in the spirit? And again, the answer is no. So he says, why are you trying to earn now what was freely given to you by grace? If Paul were writing in our day using some modern illustration, he might say, you know, what God did for you is he gave you a car. Not an old beater, but a brand new supercharged you know, race car with a full tank of gas. He handed you the keys. He said, enjoy the gift, turn the key, step on the gas, and drive on down the road with all this power available to you. He says, but what you've done instead is you've gotten out and you're pushing this car down the road. And he says, everybody's looking at you going, what are you doing? It makes no sense. And as he's talking about this grace and God's power that's available to them, I want you to notice that in verse 3, he's not just talking about justification. Now, we're, we're about to define and unpack what these theological terms mean. But he's not just talking about justification, but now he moves to the next step of what's called sanctification. And I said I'd define some terms for you, so let's start with justification. Justification... Uh, as we saw last week, as Paul in chapter 2 was saying, we're justified by faith alone. Justification is the point where we believe in Jesus Christ and we're saved. 
The word to justify in a legal context literally means to declare righteous, to declare righteous. It's a courtroom term that says we who are sinners, which is all of us, the Bible makes very clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. So every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived except for the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, has sinned. So he says, as sinners, we're all guilty. And under the law, in a court, you've been indicted, you've been declared guilty, and now there is a penalty that has to be assessed for your guilt. And so he says, we were guilty, and the Bible says the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So what Paul says is, you and I are guilty. As sinners, we owe a penalty of death. And he says, but then in God, in his mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did is he went to the cross and he allowed himself to die. Why? Because the penalty of sin was death. Somebody who did not owe the penalty had to pay it himself. And only God could do that. And so he says, God gave us this gift. And when we receive Jesus' death in our place, we are justified being declared righteous and acceptable by God, not because of what we did, but because of what God's son did on the cross as he died for us. You see, the scriptures tell us sin must be paid for. When you talk to people, they'll say, well, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. God is love. God is great in his love for us. It's why he gave his son Jesus to us. But he's also holy. He's also just. And as a holy and just God, sin cannot be in his presence. And so God had this problem with us where he wanted us with him, but he also said as sinners we couldn't be with him. And the way that he bridged the gap was by giving his son Jesus to pay the penalty, to satisfy the law, and to show his mercy and grace. And so what happens is, uh, when we come to Christ, his death made possible for we who are fallen men and women to be declared righteous. He credits the death of Jesus, the payment he made to our account when we place our faith and trust in him. That's justification. We'll talk a little bit more as we go through this. Then comes the step of something called sanctification. The word sanctify literally means to consecrate, to take something and set it apart and say it now has a new and designated purpose. Well, when we become a believer in Christ, we are taken out of this world of sin and death that we were slaves to, and God says you have been saved, made a part of the family of God, and now set apart as sons and daughters of God to walk in a manner worthy of your new position in Christ. Now, just like we're not saved by our own ability in, in coming to Christ, we're not saved, I mean, we're not sanctified based upon our own power. You see, God gives us the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord? The Spirit of God dwells within you. It tells us as believers, do not quench the Spirit of God by which you were sealed. God gives us this power source in our life to live for him, to walk with him. And so this is what this process of sanctification is. We don't live in a way that pleases God to be saved. We do this because we are saved. We've talked earlier in this series about how we respond out of love and out of worship 
to what God has done for us. We don't buy or earn his favor as those who have received his grace. We respond and live for him as a response of gratitude for the grace we've received. Now then comes a final step when we leave this earth called glorification. You hear people talk about, well, we're going to go to glory in heaven. And this, this concept of glorification is where our, our imperfect bodies and our lives are then made perfect when we get to heaven. Uh, this either happens at the rapture when Christ takes believers who are still alive at the return of his son to heaven or when we die. And 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We find this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two and 53. It says in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. There's this glorification, this final step of perfection. We will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Philippians 3.21 puts it this way, He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, to understand what all this is talking about, I want you to, to recognize that when we first come to faith in Christ, when we are justified, we are saved at that very moment. All of this is where we grow in Christ's likeness as we get closer and closer to what God wants. But if you come to faith in Christ here, you are saved at that moment and you will enter into glory. Remember the thief on the cross who was dying with Jesus who placed his faith in Christ. Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. He went right from justification to glorification. That doesn't happen very often. I don't think you want that to happen with you, but... Some of us don't grow a whole lot during this process of our life. And that's, a, that's another sermon another day. So what happens is when we come to faith in Christ, we are saved at that very moment, but we don't necessarily reflect the full glory of who God is. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about a diamond. And if you've ever seen a diamond... Uh, in its raw form, when it's first mined from the earth, it's, it's really not a whole lot to look at. It's dull-looking, it's dirty, it, it's, you know, it, it's not that impressive. Now, that diamond is precious. At that very moment, it is valuable, but it doesn't look like all that it will one day look like. So when we come to faith in Christ, we're in that raw form, justification, some of us are dull and dirty and, and don't look, you know, really that impressive. But then what God does after he saves us through the sacrifice of his son and we accept it by, by faith in Christ, we then move into this process of sanctification. That stone is given to a jeweler who studies it, figures out how he wants to cut it, and he will begin to shape the diamond. He will begin to bring out the, the hidden beauty of that stone. And then ultimately, it moves to the final step of glorification where that, that cut diamond is polished and it's placed in a setting and it's, it's put on a ring that one day uh, a, a man takes and drops to his knees with that ring and he stands before a, a woman reaches in his pocket, drops to his knees and she goes, and he goes, will you marry me? And, and as he places that, that beautiful shining rock on her finger, she begins to reflect the glory of the diamond, right? And for the next six months, you see her walking around like this, showing everybody. And everybody who sees it, it's sparkling and she's sparkling. And that's seen in all its glory. 
And I saw somebody nudge a guy next to him here, like, when is that going to happen? All right. (laughs) That is the process that is being undertaken here in our walk with God. And, And what happens here is Paul says, do you not see what God has done with you and where he's taken you? He says, so why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to this living under the law and slavery and the various things we've seen earlier in the series? Now, in verse 4, Paul continues with his questions. He says, why have you been suffering as a result of following the crucified Christ if you can simply be circumcised and follow the law? Now, the background for what this is happening, I want you to remember as we're reading Galatians, this letter is taking place parallel to the, the things in the book of Acts. And the background for what Paul is saying to the Galatian church here is found in Acts uh, chapter 13, because in Acts 13.43, it says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes, proselytes, remember, were Gentiles who had come to faith in the Messiah Jesus, and, and they, were, they were also in Judaism, as we talked about earlier in the series, they would receive circumcision as a sign that they were now Jewish proselytes. But Paul says, you guys aren't under the law, you're following Christ. And so he says there's this, this mixture of believing Jews and, and Gentiles who have come to faith, and, and he says these proselytes and things followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas were teaching these believers, you are to live in grace, not under the law. Now, the, the Judaizers, these Jewish legalists who were trying to get everybody to follow the law, didn't like this. And as you keep reading there in Acts 13, in verses 49 through 50, it says, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. This is that region of Galatia where these churches are, as we talked about in the first message. And it says, But when the Jews saw this happening, this gospel spreading in the whole region, it says they incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. They're teaching grace. And these Judaizers come in and they chase Paul and them out. And the remaining Gentile believers were now under persecution as there's pressure to fall under the system of rules and ritual and follow the law. And Paul says, I know y'all have been suffering. You've been dealing with this. And he says, now you're, you're ready to capitulate and say, okay, okay, we're going to follow the law. We're going to do these things. And he says, then why did you go through all that pain and suffering to begin with? Why don't you just from the very start say, okay, we're under the law. He says, has all your suffering been in vain? Has it been worthless? Again, he says, why? Why would you do this? And as as he's saying this to them, he says, you know, it could stop immediately if you just say, okay, we're going to follow the law. And he says, maybe the persecution stops, but so too do some of the, the works that God is doing in your midst. As you look at verse 5, he says other things will stop like the miracles they were seeing. Now again, read through Acts and see the the miracles that are taking place in the early church. You have lives that are being changed. You have people who are being healed. You have demons that are being cast out. In Acts 9, you have Dorcas, who's even raised from the dead, this faithful uh, servant of Christ, and, and she's raised back from the dead. And he says there's all these miracles and things that are happening that are evidence of the Spirit of God in your midst, of God working among you as his people. And he says, why? 
Why would you want to lose all that? Why would you want to give that up to go back under this system of slavery to the law? You know, we see things like that happening in our midst as well. You can say, well, I've never really seen anybody raised from the dead, Roger, but um, think about the other life-changing things that have happened. There was a story of a young believer. He had been an alcoholic. He struggled with drinking his whole life. And he came to Christ, and, and God changed his, his life. And one of his buddies who had been his, his drinking buddy didn't like this because he no longer went with him to the bars and did things. And he, he, was, he was mocking his friend one day, and he goes, Oh, come on, man. Do you really believe all this stuff in the Bible? I mean, stuff like that, that miracle about Jesus turning water, uh, turning water into wine. He says, that, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. And this young believer said to his friend, he said, well, I can tell you in my life, God has turned uh, wine into food and furniture and the resources needed to pay bills and take care of my family. God is in the business of changing lives when we come to him, when we walk with him. And Paul is bringing all this up as evidence, as he says, look at your life, look at the lives changed around you of God being at work, not under the law, but through the spirit and God's power and the grace available to you. Now what Paul does is he, he adds a new layer to the argument here beginning in verse 6, because remember the Judaizers were those who were promoting the law. They said, you have to follow the Mosaic law, the the things that God gave through Moses. This is the model and how we're saved and how we're to live. And so Paul says, okay, let's go back to the foundation of the Jewish roots and race. He says, before Moses, there was a patriarch by the name of Abraham. In fact, Abraham was the first of the Jewish line. Abraham was the guy that God gave the symbol of circumcision as a sign of the covenant to. So Paul says, you want to talk about the law? You want to talk about how to live under the law and what God said in the Old Testament about how we're saved? He said, let's go back to the very beginning. And he says in verse 6 in Galatians 3, he says, even so Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you see that? He says, the patriarch, the one that received the sign, the one who is the beginning, the roots of Judaism, He says he believed in God, not that he did the works of the law. This is a quote that comes directly from Genesis 15, 6. And you see the word translated there is reckoned to him as righteousness. Some translations say credited. The Greek word that is used here is uh, elogisthan. And this is a word that literally means to put to one's account. Now, what does that mean, to put to one's account? It was actually an accounting term. And it was used to describe when money was received and it was counted as payment and credited against what was owed in an account. So as you think in terms of our salvation, the wages of sin is death. We have a debit that has to be paid. It's called death. And when Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross, he said in John 19.30, Tetelestai, a word that literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. God's son, as he died on the cross, said, I am paying the penalty in full. You owe the penalty of death. I am dying in your place. I offer this payment to you now to receive and use to pay off your own personal account. 
This, this word literally means in this, the root of this word is logos, a word that means to speak. And so what God is doing as our account is paid in full is he declares us as righteous. He, he gives a legal uh, statement where he confers the status on us that we are free from condemnation. We are now righteous. The penalty has been paid. The account is closed. Now, I know these are big words, but I want you to understand these theological concepts because it should excite you. It should make you just in awe say to God, thank you for what you did. Because when you hear that we are justified, some people say, well, it's just as if I never sinned. That sounds nice, but that's wrong. Because we did sin. And there was a penalty owed, the penalty of death. And God didn't ignore our sin. What he said is you owe a penalty and it has to be paid. And the only one who can pay that penalty is my son. And he gave Jesus to us who gave his life to close the account that was owed. And he offers this gift to us. You can read Romans chapter 4 where it talks about this. There you'll see a big word, imputation. And imputation talks about how it's, it's the same concept. God takes our sin and he imputed, he laid it on Christ. And Jesus took his death and the blood that was shed and the payment made and he put it in our account. It is a transference of our guilt to God and God's righteousness to us. And that's why God says, I see you as whole and clean and welcomed into my family in the kingdom of God. Now, when a sinner trusts Christ, God's righteousness gets credited to his account. And this is what Paul is pointing to when he says, look at Abraham. Abraham had a saving faith, not in the sign of circumcision. As Paul is talking about Abram at this moment, it's 14 years before God gave the covenant sign of circumcision. As he talks about what saved Abraham, it wasn't living under the Mosaic law. You can read Genesis 15, read Romans 4, read Hebrews chapter 11. In it, you'll see that what Abraham placed his faith in, he heard a promise of God, he believed it, and he accepted it. One promise was when Abram was living in Ur of Chaldees. His name originally was Abram. It was changed to Abraham when he became the father of nations. And God shows up to this guy who was a, a rich guy living out in Ur, and he said, hey, I want you to pack up everything you have. I want you to move your family, your flocks, everything to a land that I will show you. Where are we going? God said, pack up. Just follow me. I'll tell you when we get there. And that's where the land of Israel was given to the Jews. Later, God said to him, Abram, you're 75 years old. You don't have any kids of your own. Guess what? I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a son. And again, all those passages tell us that he believed in God. He trusted in God. He said, God, you said you would give it. I believe it. I accept that. He's 75 years old at the time. There are people who ask me all the time, Roger, I struggle with my faith. There are times I doubt God. I'm, I'm not sure if I really believe what I believe. Does that mean that I'm not really saved? Does that mean that I lack faith? I mean, what, what exactly is faith? Does it mean we never struggle? No, that's not what faith is. You can struggle in your faith. Abraham struggled in his faith. His wife, Sarah, struggled in their faith. God gave them this promise. You're going to have a son. He's 75 at the time he hears this. Ten years passed, still no son. 
Abraham begins to go, well, maybe God had a different way for this to be fulfilled. Under the law, the old uh, ways of doing things, you could actually designate a servant of yours as your heir, and they would become the legal heir. And so Abraham says, uh, okay, uh, you know, God, I guess what you meant was I needed to do it myself, right? Trust in my own abilities. So he says, I'm going to take my servant, Eleazar, and I'm going to designate him as my heir. And God said, no, Abram, that's not what I said. I said, I would give you a physical descendant who would be more numerous than the sand of the seashore. That's not how it's going to be fulfilled. They're going along, and Sarai uh, says, well, you know, I think we need to help God, Abram. Um, I'm old. I'm barren. I've never been able to have kids. Uh, here, take my, my servant, Hagar. She's your concubine now. Another way the law said you could raise up somebody through a proxy. And so this servant was made a concubine. She gives birth to a man by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations because God promised your descendants will be uh, heirs of nations, you know. And so the Arab line came from Ishmael, but not the Jewish line because God said, I don't need your help. I don't need you uh, working with me in order for my promises to happen, to be fulfilled. And so Ishmael was rejected as the the promised heir because he said there is one coming through you, Sarah, and you, Abraham. And when God reaffirms his promise to them in Genesis 17, 17, uh, this is what what happens. It, It says that then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to me, a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? The promise came at 75. 25 years later, they're still waiting. And God says, yes, I promised it. I fulfill it. And Isaac is born, a name that literally means laughter. Abraham laughed about this being fulfilled. Sarah laughed. The baby brought joy into their life, and this becomes the line in Genesis chapter 21 of the Jewish line. Friends, faith doesn't mean that you never struggle. You can struggle and still have faith. It doesn't mean that you don't have doubts, and God says, it doesn't count, you're not good enough. What faith is, is that you hold on to the hope and the promise of what God has said is coming. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. God defines what faith is for us. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. And as you read the very next verse in Hebrews 11 too, it says, in men of, it says, for by this, men of old gained approval. That's how Abraham was saved, through faith. Not through what he did. Not through his actions, but through believing and accepting what God had said. And as you read Hebrews 11, there are several other Old Testament saints mentioned as examples. There's Abel, there's Enoch, there's Noah, there's Abraham, Sarah. And the list shows that all of these had this faith. You see, Abraham by faith looked forward to the promise of a son. And ultimately the promise of the promised Messiah, the son of God who would come through the Jewish line, Jesus Christ. And this is what saved Abraham. And this is what Paul is pointing to. He says that you need to understand, Galatians, you're not saved through the works of the law. You're saved through faith. And he says if we're talking about the things God said were going to come, he says, do you Gentiles realize that God talked about you 
back in Genesis. Because as you read in Galatians 3.8, what Paul's quoting for, from there is Genesis 12.3, where God said the nations outside of the Jewish line would also be blessed. Paul is saying to them, you are a fulfillment of the promises of God. He says Abraham had physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob. That's the Jewish line. But he says there are spiritual descendants that come who believe in God. Look at Galatians three seventeen through 14. He says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are of the sons of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, what's happening here is the Jewish legalists were proud of the fact they were descendants of Abraham. And and Paul says at one level, that's great that you guys are proud of it. Paul himself was a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews. He was a guy who said, yeah, we have this great line. We have this patriarch Abraham. And there are promises, there are covenants of God that apply to the nation of Israel. We don't have time to go into all of this, but I want you to understand that Paul is not saying the church has come in and replaced Israel. That the covenants and promises are no longer in effect. There are things that apply to the Jewish nation specifically that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and, and in other things. This is not a replacement of that, but what Paul is talking about here is salvation. And he says salvation doesn't come through being a Jew. It doesn't come through this, this racial line. This isn't just Paul saying this. It's been taught all throughout the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, when John the Baptist, a righteous Jew, was here calling people to repentance, he, he said to the Jewish leaders in that day that the, their physical descent did not guarantee their salvation, their spiritual life. Jesus Christ himself said in John eight thirty three through 47 that there was a distinction between Abraham's seed physically and Abraham's children spiritually. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, you know, that's, that doesn't really apply to me, Roger. I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish, so that's great, but it doesn't apply to me. Can I tell you how this applies to us? There's a word of warning here for us. Not only does it apply to us first where we should say, thank you, God, for your grace, by allowing me as a Gentile to be grafted into the promises of the nation of Israel. But a warning for us is this. Just as Paul was obliterating the confidence the Jews had in their physical inheritance, which they thought would bring them salvation, I talk to people on a regular basis who tell me, well, you know, I'm a Christian, my spouse is a Christian, we have Christian grandparents, you know, so my kids who, who you know, they don't really know Jesus or they're not walking with them, and th- it doesn't matter because they're going to kind of inherit our godly line and salvation. And I go, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. 
I mean, those are blessings, friends. If you grew up in a home with believing parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or you're Jewish by birth and you've had the benefit of, of the being raised and the understanding of who God is and, and his ordinances and promises, those are wonderful blessings, but they do nothing to save you. God has no spiritual grandchildren. Every single one of us has to come to faith personally. There are no, my parents were saved, so I'm saved. And so what Paul is saying to the Jews applied to the Galatian Gentiles as well, saying you have to come to faith. You have to personally accept this gift of God's grace. Remember, Paul shattered the Judaizers' argument that their physical relationship is a basis for being saved. And now what he does is he says, let me dismantle your confidence in the law. He says, you guys are saying if we follow the law, then we can be saved that way. But what he does is he goes in and he quotes from the law itself because now he goes to Deuteronomy 27, 26, which says, Cursed is he who does not conform, uh, confirm the words of the law by doing them. The word Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And Paul says, let's go to the book of the law, Deuteronomy. And what the book of the law says is, unless you fulfill everything 100% of the time, you're lost. And the New Testament confirms that truth as well because it says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You see, what this is saying is if in, in our lifetime, if we break even one commandment, and friends, there's not just the 10 commandments, there are 613 of them. And it says if we break even one commandment one time in our life, we're lost. The whole penalty of the law applies to us. And the penalty of the law is death. That's why Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. You see, there's not a single man, woman, boy, or girl who's never lived their life where they haven't lied, cheated, stolen a crumb of a cookie, done something wrong sometime, somewhere. Is there anyone here who's been perfect 100% of the time? Please raise your hand. I didn't think so. The pastor in the pulpit to everybody else is a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word glory of God means his standard is perfection. 100% of the law, 100% of the time. And Paul says we have a problem. Because as Deuteronomy 27.26 says, the law demands perfection. And we've all fallen short. We all owe this penalty of death. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Works were never the way God gave us to be saved. And as further evidence of this, Paul points in verse 11 to one of the Old Testament prophets by the name of Habakkuk. He's quoting there in verse 11 from Habakkuk 2, 4, when he says, The righteous will live by faith. Paul says, look at the law, look at the patriarch Abraham, look at the Old Testament prophets. He says, everybody is telling you that it's by faith alone, through grace alone, in what the promised Messiah would do, not what any of us do. Here's, here's a, a picture that maybe will help you understand what Paul's talking about. Think of two spheres. And Paul says, if you're trying to live under the law, the result is a curse. And the reason there's a curse is because the law doesn't save you. What it does is it convicts you because it says you failed. 
Remember, it's a judicial indictment. You owe a penalty. And so you're under the curse of a law. It doesn't bring the blessing that he's talking about in verse 9 of faith under Abraham. He says, you're, you're guilty of the indictment of the law. He says, however, if you live in the other sphere under faith where you're justified, this justification where Jesus died to pay this penalty of death for our sins and we accept it by grace, he says, then that is credited to your account. The curse is removed. The penalty is paid. And the way the penalty is paid is in 1 Peter 1.18 through 19. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Read John 129 where John the Baptist points at Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says Jesus came. He took on flesh in order to be the substitutionary sacrifice, to be nailed to the cross in our place in order to die to pay that penalty of death. When it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the word for redeem here literally means to set free by the payment of a ransom. It was used to speak of the purchase of a slave off the slave block. And it says you were not, you were not bought with, with money, you were not bought with anything but the blood of the lamb. A slave could be freed by the payment of money, but there's no amount of money that a lost sinner can have their sins removed by giving to God or, or trying to earn or buy their salvation. Only the precious blood of Jesus can redeem us, which is why Christ came which is why he died for us. You see, in verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is what Jesus did. He literally took on the curse. Again, remember, Paul is dismantling the the argument of the law. And so what Paul is doing here is he's going back and he's quoting from the Old Testament law itself. When he says the curse of the law is transferred from sinners to Christ, the sinless one, there's this substitutionary atonement where he takes our sins and its penalty on himself and he takes his righteousness and he puts it in our account. There's this transfer, this payment that is made when we accept Jesus by faith. I told you he's quoting from the law. Listen to what Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23 tells us. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he, he worthy of death and he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance Jesus was crucified on a wooden cross a tree literally Now, in the Old Testament system, Jews normally stoned people to death. And then what they would do to show the divine retribution of God, they would then take the corpse and they would put it on a a stake, a pole, some tree-like thing where they would hang the body for everybody to see and say they are guilty. And this is the, the penalty of law. Rome crucified Jesus Christ. They were the power in place at the time. Remember, the Jews went to them and said, we can't kill this guy. You have to do it for us. And so as Rome executed Jesus on a tree, it wasn't the Jews telling him, now make sure he's dying on a cross, a tree. That was what Rome did. 
The Jews, had they done it, they would, have, they would have hung his corpse on a cross, I mean on a stake, some kind of wooden pole for a while. But then to honor the body, they take it down. Remember how they went to the uh, Romans and said, hey, we can't leave Jesus' body up overnight. You know, can you take it down and bury it? Because that's, again, they, they had this, this law of God that they were trying to follow. Now, as the body is hung on a tree, I said that the Romans executed Jesus. But what they were doing, actually, is the execution of God's plan from the very beginning. The death of Jesus was God's plan of salvation. As he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse himself. We see this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. God made him... That's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the transference? Our sin and its penalty was imputed to Christ, a big word, theological word, and then the righteousness of God was imputed or credited to us by faith. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 tells us, When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. By dying on the cross, Jesus took the curse of the law for us. So that now as believers, we are no longer under the law and its curse. What Paul ends by talking about here in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about the blessing of Abraham, which is justification by faith and the gift of the Spirit. And he says this now comes to us through faith in Christ. To sum this up, he says in verse 13, Jesus was the substitute taking the curse we earned. And he gave us in verse 14 uh, the blessing that he earned. Here's the bottom line. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you're trusting in something else, being here in church, giving to God, doing enough good stuff, based upon your background, whether you're Jewish or some other thing that you believe is is righteous enough for you, the Bible is very clear. Jews and Gentiles alike have to receive the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're trusting in anything other than the crucifixion of Christ, where he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins, and where he was buried in the ground and three days later he rose from the dead, showing that he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God, who conquered sin and death, then, friends, you are lost. You are under the curse of the law. You are going to be the one who will pay it yourself. But if you accept that check that God has given for eternal life, then God says you will be accepted into heaven. In John 1.12, he says, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. He tells us in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. As we end today, I want to give you an opportunity to receive this gift of God. If you're here and you've never understood what God did for you and how you have to turn to Christ and accept personally his gift of grace to you and you're ready to do so now, I invite you to pray a prayer with me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. 
This is just your way of saying to God, I want to accept your payment in my place. I want to close my account. I want the penalty of sin to be paid by what your son Jesus did for me. And today, God, I'm accepting that great gift. If you'd like to do that, then bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that there are times in my life that I have not been perfect. And because I've fallen short of your standard of perfection, I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and took my place, that you died on the cross in order to take sin and death, the penalty that was owed under the law upon yourself. And you canceled the debt. As you said, Jesus, in John 19.30, paid in full, it is finished. And today, Jesus, I accept that gift of new and eternal life. I accept your death in my place. I believe you are the Son of God, the one who was sent to die for me. I believe you rose from the dead three days later, showing that you conquered sin and death. I receive you today as my personal Savior. I accept your gift of grace and new and eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, God, for making me a part of your family. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.